Herb Alpert in the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this is Fangraphs Audio. After four consecutive episodes featuring Dave Cameron from the bowels of the Hilton Anatoly in Dallas, Texas, where this year's winter meetings were taking place, we take a more leisurely pace with this edition of the podcast. My guest is Eric Augenbron. Mr. Augenbron contributes to Notgraphs. He's also involved with The Good Fight, the SB Nation blog for the Philadelphia Phillies, contributes occasionally to The Guardian UK, and, as we learn in what follows, teaches chess to Philadelphia-area children. In our conversation, we discuss chess and how our understanding of that game might be similar to or different than our understanding of baseball. Eric and I look briefly again at the Albert Pujols situation, the recent contract he's signed, the recent giant contract he's signed with the Los Angeles Angels. We also consider uh, the comedy stylings of Dave Chappelle. I should note that Mr. Augenbron has a scholarly interest in class and race in the United States. We look at Mr. Chappelle's work through that lens and also through the lens of how he's funny. It's not always about baseball, but it is always nerdy. And it's coming up right now on this edition of Fangraphs Audio. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm being uh, I'm being facetious because uh, I, I I I in fact uh, teach children chess, so uh, I um, I think they're all right. You're you well, I, you teach children chess? Yeah, I'm a chess teacher. That's your my, is that your the job that pays you the most money of all your jobs? All my jobs they, they, they pay roughly. They they pay a, a sort of similar amount. It, they're all sort of pieces of a big puzzle that of is, poverty. Uh, of your, that, yeah, that's po- poverty. <laughs> yeah. What do you know about chess? What, how'd you get to be good at it? Um, I started playing in middle school, and my school had a really they they had a sort of or they they have a renowned. Uh, uh, chess team and chess club and the coaches has been around for a really long time and he won two national championships at the scholastic level so uh, yeah so I started started playing in middle school and started playing competitively um, and I played all the way through high school um, and so yeah I just and Along the way, I started teaching a little bit, and uh, I've been teaching. I've been teaching pretty much since. I mean, I've had, I've, I've had, um, you know, the number of students I've had sort of fluctuates, but uh, I've been teaching pretty consistently through since high school. Is there a, is there a sabermetrics of chess? Does that even make sense? Um. I, I don't, I don't, not that I really, not that I know. I mean, it's interesting because in, in recent years, like with the proliferation of chess computer software and stuff, the amount of, the amount of raw data that's sort of available to players is, has just, I mean, now, now you can pretty much access any high level game that's ever been played. 
in one place very easily. Right. There's a thing called the book, essentially, right? The chess has right. chess has a book, and uh, actually there was a there was a really great radio lab program uh, this summer that was on the nature of games, and it, uh, it's worth listening for anyone who's interested in games generally, um, you know, for baseball, for example. Uh, but they do a there's a great segment in that episode regarding chess, mm-hmm. and I guess that there is a right there's a catalog uh, of all the sort of more high profile matches that occur. And there are there are cases where like most matches occur, especially for the first X number of moves on book, and then at a certain point it's it's possible that a match could go off book. Is that a fact? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's there's sort of a vast number of um, vast sort of number of combinations of opening moves, um, but so many games of chess have been played that a lot of these a lot of these opening moves um, repeat them are repeat are, are seen in thousands and thousands of games, but it's possible to um, in in any given opening sort of um, steer away from what's you know quote unquote the the book the book the book variation um, and then you're sort of that's the point at which um, you're 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 on your own. And if, um, in essence, like you're, uh, that then like the, the, the more pure analytical skills, um, take over it. You need to, you need to be able to, um, calculate the position and, um, find the best moves because you can't rely on what's already been done. Do you, do you know what part of the brain is, is being worked when one plays chess? I mean, the best chess players, what do they have, I suppose, besides hours of practice, or perhaps hours of practice is their yeah. main asset, but what what besides hours of practice would they have, um, and do you, do you know precisely what it would, how it would relate to the brain? I, I, I haven't, I'm not very familiar with the sort of neurological studies, but I, I, I do think, like, it is possible to get very good at chess just through, through through study. I mean, the best players, the best players in the world, for them, being able to stay at the, at that level requires eight to eight to twelve hours of study a day, um, um, and that's sort of like any any sort of athletic pursuit. Like, to, in order to stay um, at that elite level, you need to you need to train and stuff, but. There also is, I think, a certain amount of just um, natural ability. Um, that, I mean, if you if you sort of look at the the list of the best players, the best players in the world, um, there yeah, it seems like it's getting younger and younger. Like the, there are more and more um, teenage grandmasters. Um, popping up. I mean, one of the best players in the world currently is is like around 20. And he was he was a an elite grandmaster by the time by the time he was um, like around 17 or 18. How, who uh, uh, do you know? Do you have his name off the top of your head? Yeah, his name is uh, Magnus Carlson. Magnus Carlson. Um, yeah. And where's he? Where's he from? I think it's I think it's Norway. 
Yeah, that's fine. But so he, so right, and the suggestion is right. Like we might make the same case for um, music prodigies. Right. Is yeah. that um, if it's you would one would assume that if there is a certain level of mastery that can be achieved at a very young age, mm-hmm. uh, then the natural talent is like a big part of it, a sort of natural ability right. to, you know, whether it's to to play the instrument or, or play chess. And I, I would guess at some level that those are exercising at least a similar part of the brain. Yeah. I, I, would, I, I think that comparison to like the, the, the music prodigy and the chess prodigy are made quite often. And I think it's, it's, it's pretty much the same phenomenon. Um, but it's, it, I mean, it, it's pretty incredible. Like, so I, it seems to me like they're getting the the level of the young, like the young players are getting better and better. Um, but that just that could just me be me getting older um, and not getting any better at chess. <laughs> but, well, I don't know um, about your chess level, but I can tell you that you are getting older. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's unfortunately. Yeah, that's a fact. That's the direction. We'll watch it virtually. The match I watched was Magnus Carlsen, the world's top player, versus Ikuro Nakamura, the U.S. champ. I call up Frederick. Hello, it's Frederick. To give me the play-by-play, because I actually don't know much about chess. Okay. Well, his program, Fritz, can tell you how many times each move has occurred in the entire recorded history of chess. What does that mean? It's like his computer can look at the board and say, yeah, that move you just made, huh? that has happened before, and I will tell you exactly how many times before. Hey, it started. Here we go. Move one. White moves. It's D4 to D5. White pawn two squares forward. My database tells me that there are 1,775,000 games in which this occurred. Then move two. Black counters with its pawn going from C4 to E6. Now we've got two pawns facing each other, middle of the board. And according to Fred's database, this exact configuration has occurred in... 514,518 games. So a million and a half down to half a million. Smaller. Yes. Move three. White moves another pawn. 335,000. Black, another pawn. 149,000. smaller. Yep. White moves its knight. 114,000. Black moves its bishop. 91,000. Less again. White pawn takes a black pawn. Just have our first casualty, people. 2,428 games. What was that again? 2,400. Oh, the black pawn responds. 2,613 games. White bishop flies across the board. 2,125 games. Black moves another pawn up. 1,200. White queen does a little thing. 381 games. 381, getting lower. Yes. Black bishop retreats. 19 games. 19. 1-9. White moves another pawn. Which has occurred in 11 games. Okay, black bishop retreats. Still 11 games. White bishop advances. We're down to 10 games. 10. Woo! Black bishop falls back even further. And we have nine games. Black bishop takes white bishop. Five games. White pawn retaliates taking black bishop. Still five games. And then... White rook and white king switch places. Now there are no more games. You have a position which has never occurred before in the universe. Ever? No. In the universe? Not in the history of this universe. And this is what is known as the novelty. The novelty. Oh, man. The novelty, yeah. I, I don't envy his, uh, his 
predicament. Well, hey, so uh, it, it appears that we've accidentally talked about baseball. Uh, let's let's pursue that, if only for a moment. The, obviously, sure. today uh, the Angels signed Albert Pujols and C.J. Wilson. They spent essentially they committed themselves to uh, a little bit over 325 million dollars. Um, and about 15 player years, which is a lot of money in years. The uh, how did you react to that? How do you react to the blockbuster signing? Is that something that appeals to you and gets you excited? Uh, are you more prone to to make a, um, a flippant um, comment about it? I know you're a little flippant sometimes, Og and Braun. Yeah. Well, I'm, frankly, I'm relieved that Pujols did not land in the in the NL East. Um, in fact, the AL West is about it's as far as he can possibly get, and you know he won't be he won't be tormenting Phillies fans or or Mets fans or Braves fans or Nationals fans for that matter. Um, so I, I I was there there was certainly a sense of relief um, when when it was the uh, when when it was revealed that he'd be going to the Angels and all I. I guess empathy for people in uh, in St. Louis because that that has to suck <laughs> to lose your best player. Yeah, right. And a, and, a, and a player who's been the the face of the franchise, if not for all of his eleven years, then for a good portion of them, and who's been the best player in baseball for you know yeah. probably over half of those years. Yeah, but I mean, in general, big signings are. It's it's the game. <laughs> it's uh, I mean, good for him. It's uh, it's a lot of money. He's he's uh, he's much richer than I will ever be. <laughs> yes, yes, he is right. Yeah, even if you get like another part-time job. <laughs> yeah, that, that's even, true. even if yeah. So yeah. do the Marlins? Do the Marlins? Scare you now? Is that like a? Is are you worried about that? I mean, who who would they sign? They signed uh, Heath Bell, who's a a closer, and um, yeah, of course the Phillies spent a lot on the closer this offseason. They they signed Jose yeah. Reyes, who actually is like at his best, he's legitimately one of the best players in baseball. And then um, yeah. and then they signed Mark Burley, who I I think is is likely to be a disappointment. Yeah, uh, but although they didn't, they didn't necessarily give him a ton of money. I think he just has to be worth like, you know, ten or eleven wins to be worth his contract, which is fine. But he's yeah. he's probably like on a like game by game basis or inning by inning basis. You know, he's probably their fourth best pitcher, um, depending on how you feel about yeah. Ricky Nolasco. Maybe he's he's their third best pitcher. But Johnson and Sanchez, yeah. if I had to pitch one game, I'd prefer to have those those guys. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, are you worried yeah. about them? I'm more worried than I was. Uh, more worried than I was uh, coming into the 2011 season. Uh, I still think. I mean, so on one on the one hand, like they they have a lot of young players who are who you can sort of anticipate them improving. Um, by how much I don't know, but they, you can anticipate some improvement from from some of their offensive players, um, and the, their pitching staff is is it's 
it's it's very solid, like and um, you know. So I, I think they're. I still think the I still think objectively the Phillies are probably better, um, but it's going to be it's going to be a much much tighter race I think between the the top three teams, uh, the Braves, the Phillies, and the, the Marlins there. Um, so yeah, I mean. I don't. I haven't really looked too closely at like how much better they can ex- be expected to be realistically, but you, you'd have to figure they're, you know, between you know, eighty-five and a ninety-one team now, right? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I you know, I'd have to look at the projections, I guess. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, improved. Right, and then yeah. and of course a bunch of it's going to depend on health, um, and they'll be yeah. better at some level simply because, or, you know, if if Hanley Ramirez plays like something like himself, and is healthy for yeah. you know at least three quarters of the season, uh, I I think Mike Stanton, uh, he's he's probably one of the most interesting players in that team, if not the most interesting, because yeah. with his power potential, if he learns to take walks at all. He could very easily supplant. Uh, well, I guess not Albert Pools anymore, but he could supplant. He could become the best player in the league. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, he's 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 simultaneously uh, horrifying and uh, amazing to watch. I think he's going to terrorize the NL East for many, many years. Um, and I, I think I think you can pretty much. Pencil in Reyes to miss to miss around twenty five games. I mean that seems like that seems like his norm. Um, so and you know he's he's going to be there well into his thirties now. So that uh, it's it's I mean they're yeah I mean the, the Marlins are I mean, they they certainly look legitimate now. Um, so. Right, they've done some. They've done some things to help themselves. I got friends in jail. I don't visit. I don't deal with jails. Don't deal with jails, and I don't deal with police. My house got robbed in New York. I didn't even call the police. I wanted to, but I couldn't. My crib is too nice. It's not that it's too nice, but it's too nice for me. <laughs> you know how the police are in New York. Soon as I open the door, they'll be like, oh, he's still here. <laughs> open and shut case, Johnson. <laughs> Apparently, this black guy broke in and hung up pictures of his family everywhere. <laughs> Never seen anything like it. What makes, what makes you like comedians specifically, or uh, just in general? Um, I mean, you can you can go either way. All right. Well, when do you general, find yourself think, laughing? What's happening? What, what are to what stimulus are you responding? Um, other people's pain and suffering. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, that's. I mean, that is a thing, right? Like to see. Uh, to see someone fall down or like their hat blow yeah. off and have to chase it, those are jokes. And yeah. you're yeah, but 
at some level, you're yeah, laughing not, at misfortune, but they're like we're so broad, it's different. Yeah. No, I'm. I'm actually. I'm not. Generally, I'm not a fan of uh, slapstick. Um, I think it it has its uses when you know in, in moderation and when deployed at the appropriate moment. But um, I'm a big fan of uh, Dave Chappelle. Um, that kind of stuff. What does he do like, these days? Because he, uh, he has no more show, right? Is he back in stand-up, or, or is he still? Uh... Yeah, he's 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 doing stand-up again. Um, I he's I think it's sort of last I heard. I mean, I know he did a pretty big show over the summer around around the end of the summer, I think. Um, but he's He's sort of make, slowly uh, making his way back onto the scene. Um, so, well, you, 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 one of your areas of scholarly interest is in, I guess you'd say, uh, sort of race, uh, race studies. Is that the way to characterize it? How would you characterize it? Um, I'm interested in the idea of of race and the way race and class have intersected and worked, worked um, overlapped um, throughout history. Well, I believe, uh, I mean, if if we were to believe William Julius Wilson, would, you know, <laughs> race is class and class is race, am I right? Uh, I think... Yeah, I think, Wait, am I right? I just, yeah, I, seriously, I, I read a book by him, and I think that's what it said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think William Julius Wilson is kind of, he kind of sucks, but, <laughs> um, um, but sort of very generally speaking, I think one could say that race is one, is sort of like one way in which um, class is is experienced, um, and so the, the idea of race is sort of inseparable from from the notion of class, um, and it, it's sort of it's it's pretty futile to try to uh, disentangle them. I think. Now, do you think that 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 your interest in the, those matters? informs your interest in Dave Chappelle, or do you think Dave Chappelle is just a funny dude? Um, well, I think his, his commentary on race is, 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 is absolutely hilarious. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think sort of the matter he deals with and sort of it's, Closeness to my own interests certainly has something to do with me liking his stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's also just really, really smart and funny. Right. Well, if there weren't jokes, then it wouldn't, it wouldn't be as entertaining. Right. Right. I mean, it wouldn't be as palatable. That's a yes. Right. Uh, this is something that happens in poems too, which is something I studied for a while. That when people, if people attempt to make a like a coherent argument, 
in a poem, but mm-hmm. the poem itself is bad, and and most poems are bad. So the the odds are stacked against the author in that case. Then it's it yeah. becomes even more annoying than just a normal bad poem. Because, yeah. Because then you're forced to reckon with whichever person it is that can't write a poem. You're also forced to reckon with their, you know, like, you know, tepid ideas as well. <laughs> so yeah, it's an ultra suck fest. I mean, so it seems like yeah. in those matters that the whatever is the compelling thing, like you know, in Dave Chappelle's case. It's the jokes. Like the jokes need to come first, right? And it, yeah. if for him, if part of his experience, you know, is or, or part of the thing that's funny to him is characterizing race in different ways, then it, then it works. But if he just leads with like, oh, this is these are my thoughts on race, and the jokes aren't funny, then yeah. it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's spot on. Well. As an intelligent person, uh, I'm used to that. I'm used to being <laughs> spot on. Hey, well, uh, Eric, I'm going to uh, stop this, but I think we have uh, we've reached our quota of radio magic. Great. Uh, that I like to make sure that that we hit. Um, but I, I do want to thank you for for joining us for what is, uh, what is uh, this is a decompression episode. You know, we've gotten yeah. over a tough week. Just kick back, unwind. You know, pour a little 16 year. Lagavulin to a <laughs> to a you know an attractive tumbler maybe of Swiss manufacture. Yeah, um, that's what I've been doing this that entire sounds, time. That sounds very uh, aristocratic, Tyson. Yeah, that's our goal. Uh, every second on this podcast will be imbued with the aristocratic behavior. Yeah, that's our goal. Hey, but Eric, I, uh, not, yeah, yeah. Go, what's, what's that? Yeah, I'm sort of. As a general principle, I'm not very fond of of aristocrats, but I'll make an exception in, well, in your case. Well, I, I would make a distinction between aristocrats, qua aristocrats, and then aristocratic behavior. I think there's difference. I mean, what do you think about yeah. the leisured poor? Or what do you think about, uh, you know, young, uh, impoverished people who conduct themselves as aristocrats? I think there's that's, that's uh, two birds with one stone, two... Probably delicious tasting <laughs> birds well, if uh, if you know grilled or roasted with like a honey glaze. I guess, I guess if we if we accept that aristocratic behavior is sort of the or aristocratic culture is is the culture we should strive for, then it makes sense. But uh, I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm indifferent. I don't think there's any moral imperative, but I just uh, aristocratic people tend to tend to have finer tastes, and those finer tastes uh, tend to be yeah. tend to be delicious when you. Yeah, but I, I mean, have you ever had a cheesesteak though? Yeah, I've had a cheesesteak. Sure. Yeah, that's decidedly unaristocratic and freaking delicious. It's so. freaking delicious. No, I, hey, yes, yeah. a cheesesteak can be delicious, right? <laughs> The the point is that that so can foie gras butter, you know, <laughs> and uh, and the point is, if you can afford foie gras butter, you can also afford a cheesesteak, but it, it's not necessarily the case that if you can afford a cheesesteak, you can also afford foie gras butter. That's my point. Yeah, yeah, okay, I take your point. You know, you you can smash the system, Augenbron, but you know don't. <laughs> You know, don't don't make us take the foie gras butter out of out of our 
out of our local well, restaurants. Isn't isn't foie gras kind of like some people think it's uh, like inhumane or something? Yes, and those people are called communists. Oh, well. No, they actually no, they're not. <laughs> they're called Californians. It's actually foie gras is illegal in California and Chicago oh. too, I believe. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's not the it's not a fun process for the bird. The bird undergoes a process called gavage. Uh, in yeah, which, where they stuff the thing in its mouth. And yeah, no, it's not fun for the bird, but it does taste delicious when you do that to a bird, and then <laughs> you eat its liver. That's the best part. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an animal rights person, so. Yeah. I say, you know. You know, what about an animal's guess, right to taste delicious? No one ever brings that up. Yeah. Well, I, I, I guess. The big issue it always comes down to is like, is an animal suffering unnecessarily? I think it's sort of the, uh, and if, if the animal is, then how do you justify, aside from the fact that it tastes good, how do you justify, uh, how do you justify that treatment? Well, we're uh, all suffering unnecessarily just by being alive, Agarbant. Can we start with that just as a, yeah. That's a given. That's kind of, uh, yeah. Right. That's kind, of, that's kind of grim. Yeah, it's grim. Well, you know, I mean, you know, maybe, but if if you take it as a given, then you can you know, separate yourself from it emotionally a little bit. Yeah. And it's that's even easier to do if if you're spreading foie gras onto something because that tastes delicious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Agarbon, yeah. get off this podcast and uh, and yeah. finish your knockcrafts post. Yeah, I sure will. And, uh, thanks for having me on again. Yeah, all right. That is Eric Agabron of Knockgraphs, uh, SB Nation's The Good Fight, Philly's blog, uh, The Guardian, and I guess um, local chessboards uh, in Philadelphia area. Thanks thanks for joining us, Eric. Yep. All right, that's Eric. I'm Carson Testuli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>